This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Epsigon. This week, I chat with Jay Nyer about revolutionary serverless at reInvent. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 80. everyone, I'm Jeremy Daly and this is Serverless Chats. Today I'm speaking with Ajay Nair. Hey Ajay, thanks for joining me. Hey Jeremy, finally on the show, yay. <laughs> well, I, I am glad you're here. So you are the Director of Product for AWS Lambda at Amazon Web Services. So I'd love it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your background, kind of how you ended up at AWS, um, and then what does the uh, Director of Product for AWS Lambda do? Uh, well, first, thanks for having me on the show. I've been a, a great follower of both your talks and blogs for a long time, so I'm excited to kind of finish what's been an interesting year by spending time with you. Um, my, my, I've been at AWS now coming up in about seven years, been with the Lambda team for pretty much the whole time. Uh, Tim Wagner and I were the uh, founding folks for AWS Lambda way back when. Um, I spent a whole bunch of time at uh, Microsoft and some other software companies before that in a combination of development and program slash product management roles. Um, I ended up at AWS really just looking for an opportunity to go and build uh, a, a new product or a new service in the cloud space. I'd done a whole bunch of things with developer and big data platforms before, and they signed me on on this top secret effort, which they said was going to be a new way of doing compute. And here we are seven years later with me as the director of product on the space. Um, so my role as director of product really is to help figure out uh, the the why and the what of what we should be building and evolving Lambda for. So everything that's happened to Lambda over the last seven years is in some way my fault. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, in, in, but, but in all seriousness, I get to spend time with customers, uh, figure out what the right thing to go and build for them is, and uh, help the team figure out, build it, and then help the marketing and sales team sell it. That's kind of what my day job is. And it's it's been a great ride for the last seven years. And here I am. That's awesome. Well, I am I'm super excited to have you here. Um, you know, you said it was an interesting year. That's probably an understatement. Um, but not only an interesting year in terms of everything that's been happening, but also an interesting year for serverless as well. Um, and we just finished, I think it was what, like week 27 of reInvent? Oh no, it was just week three. But it felt, I yep. mean, everything this year has just felt like it dragged on um, incredibly yep. long. Um, but so there were a lot of really cool things that happened with uh, with serverless this year. And in your purview is more around uh, Lambda, obviously, or the product, uh, you know, the director of product there. Uh, but there's so many services and things that happen at AWS that interact with it. And I think what would be really great to do, and um, I, I want to be respectful of your time and of our listeners' time, because I'm sure you and I could talk for the next 10 hours about this stuff um, and then have to take a break and talk for another 10 hours. But um, So we'll time box this a little bit, but I do want to start with just kind of a year in review of the things that have happened at, you know, with serverless, with Lambda, what are, what are some of the new capabilities, what use cases do those open up? Um, and so let's start with reInvent. Um, you know, let's start with the big ones that happened at reInvent. We can work, sort of work our way backwards um, and then hopefully we can kind of put all all this stuff together but so let's start there let's start with the big one at least I think this is a is a huge one because it opens up a, a lot of I think um, capabilities for other people to get involved and that has to do with container packaging support so mm -hmm. what's the deal with that 
Yeah, so the, the, the idea behind this, as you said, is uh, allowing you to bring uh, Lambda functions, packages, container images, and run them on Lambda. Uh, you know, this is an evolution of the team we have seen for a while where uh, there's a set of people who say, I like to build my code a certain way, but I want to run it the Lambda way, and zip just is in my style. Uh, and actually, more specifically, I think the interesting aspect there is uh, Lambda has enforced this sort of dynamic packaging structure, right? Like where the runtime and layers are bound at execution time versus doing something statically. And I think something's just happened since the beginning of Lambda is this evolution of uh, more consistency across local and, and online development and trying to push that forward. And we just saw a great opportunity of saying, you know, the container ecosystem's done a really nice job on the tooling and developer for, for front of this. Uh, driving consistency across the two brings the best of both worlds over there. Um, and we have tried to do some interesting bits over there too, like with the runtime interface client uh, allows you to kind of work with Lambda's event-driven execution model while using the container development model. Uh, the runtime interface emulator lets you get much more consistency on your sort of local testing than we have had in the past. I mean, we've had great community heroes like Michael Hart essentially powering large pieces of that. Uh, you know, we have taken some of the burden off his back to by by standardizing some of those components and taking it over there. Uh, but it just, to your point, opens up a whole set of new use cases, right? Like if you've previously committed to the container ecosystem as a tooling enabler for you, right. you now have access to all the goodness that Lambda was bringing for you as well. Right. And that's one of the things that I thought was sort of interesting. When I first heard about containers on Lambda, I was like, oh, no, what's happening here? And I and I love containers. I know I sort of joke about it. I'm not a fan of Kubernetes, but that's for different reasons. But the the idea of of um, of containers running on Lambda, I was thinking, hmm, that seems like, um, you know, that now we're really confusing things. But it's not really like a container running on it. It's just really the packaging format, right? Yep. Yeah, it is. It's just the packaging format. You know, the team and I joke that if people thought serverless was awake, then wait till they hear about containers. Uh, you know, you start realizing the word containers used as a packaging format, as an execution model, as a slang for Kubernetes, uh, as a sub for an architectural pattern like microservices. And when you say go and tell people, hey, Lambda now supports containers, they're like, wait, all of the above now work on container on Lambda. <laughs> and so you kind of have to do a little bit of separation saying, no, it's the packaging format. The execution model stays the same. It's still that you know, ephemeral model event-driven behavior that you get. You get still all the security and isolation behavior you're used to you can just package code in a much more familiar way and get access to a broader ecosystem of tools. Right, and especially with the idea of the images being able to be 10 gigabytes, I mean, now you have this ability to put all of those libraries in there, package those all together, not necessarily have to worry about the the Lambda layers and, and connecting all yeah. those things. Yeah, yeah exactly, the, the size is one. That's one we actually debated quite a bit. Like, I'm, I'm a big fan of less is more. I'm not a big fan of writing fat Lambdas and, and all the other variants that are out there, but uh, I think the 10 gig one is really interesting, especially for some of the emerging use cases like, uh, you know, machine learning and, and larger images and dependencies coming in. So, yeah, I'm just excited to see what, what people do with this larger limit and, and kind of play around with it, too. Right. Now, I know uh, Andy Jassy had announced EKS Anywhere and ECS Anywhere, um, mm -hmm. but really what you kind of get with Lambda now, too, with this packaging format is you kind of get Lambda Anywhere, right? You can sort of run this Lambda execution model in different places. Not that you would want to, but if for some reason you did, um, uh, that's certainly an opportunity. Um, yeah, okay. it, 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 I would say you can run Lambda functions anywhere. Uh, that, right. that That's a key distinction. I think, you know, one thing I just want to make sure is 
it's this is not about recreating Lambda the entire service elsewhere, which is what ECS and EKS really let you do. They let you replicate the service in your own environment. But from a perspective of taking the same code and running it in multiple places, kind of what that container ethos really embraces, very much possible with the runtime emulation otherwise. There's still a bunch of work for you to do. You know, Lambda does a bunch of work for you underneath the covers, right. uh, but at least it's possible right now, much, much more than it was before. Awesome. All right. So then the other big one for me had to do with um, reducing it down to one millisecond billing. And um, and I talked to a lot of people about this. They said, well, you know, my Lambda bill is only a hundred dollars a month anyways. Right. So it's, it's really not that big of a deal. Um, we'll get into a couple of reasons why it is a big deal um, connecting some other services. But um, one millisecond billing, what's the what, what's the, the, the thought behind that? Uh, you know, Lambda has to get faster, better, cheaper. <laughs> That's kind of what my driving <laughs> philosophy was always from the beginning. It's funny, one millisecond billing was one of the things that Tim and I discussed the, the immediately after Lambda GA. And we were like, well, we're not quite there yet. We just got the service started. Let's figure out what the response is to the product before we go and push there. But realistically, what we saw was, you know, you're kind of seeing this breadth of use cases on Lambda where a whole bunch of people are like, look, it's a couple of seconds, larger workloads, big data kinesis, et cetera, for these data intensive processes, but a lot more interactive workloads, especially when there's a bigger push for performance, you know, lighter weight runtimes like Go and others are running in that sub 100 millisecond bucket. And we're like, look, there's a way for us to save them, you know, 40, 50, 70 percent of their bill. Uh, by just changing the billing granularity at no effort for themselves, like that's a huge value point. And if you can go and tell a customer saying that, hey, you actually making your performance better is going to make that difference, right? You're actually literally saving money by making the experience better for your customers. Um, that that was a really compelling value proposition for us. Like we just felt like there was an entire class of use cases we could make 70% cheaper. We we found a way to make the money work and we we're like, yep, let's, let's ship it. <laughs> right. No, that's awesome. And, and I, I actually saw a tweet. Uh, somebody showed a graph of what their Lambda bill was um, before and after one millisecond. And it was like it was like a 40 or a 40 or 50 percent reduction. I mean, it was it was huge. And I think there are some of those use cases where if you run enough of them um, mm -hmm. and enough frequency, you know, that 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 really matters and optimizing to get under 100 milliseconds, you know, and not meeting it and running for 101 milliseconds and getting billed for 200 milliseconds. Yep. I mean, that there's a there's a huge cost savings there. So yeah. another big thing just in terms of, of um, optimizing speed, um, you know, and, and uh, this is something great that Alex Castleboni has done with his, uh, with, the, oh, um, uh, with the power tuner, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, now it's 10 gigabytes mm -hmm. of, of, uh, of memory with six, up to six virtual cores. Uh, so now you have an opportunity to really tune that even more and, and get mm -hmm. those things just cranking. And of course, the use cases that opens up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think one of uh, one of the internal demos we had done was running uh, a, a 30 millisecond ML inference, which used about four and a half cores, uh, which spun up to about 15,000 concurrent at peak. And, you know, the bill was, you know, sub $50 at that particular yeah. point because it ran for such a long, short duration of time. And I think for us, these two features are sort of enabling different uh, points in the in the spectrum, right? Like uh, 10 gigs and six cores enables you to do far more data intensive use cases, compute intensive use cases for running uh, sort of these bigger, beefier workloads, not feeling capped or restricted by the amount of compute available to you. And one millisecond was saying, well, you can still do that in this sort of really microcosm of use of of, of usage uh, to get that cost efficiency, even when you're running these really really large scale. Um, uh, workloads and and to your point, Jeremy, I think that that combination is really powerful because 
you can now performance tune to a point where you get to sub 100 milliseconds and you're incentivized to do so right you're incentivized to right. keep pushing that number even lower uh with the with the new one millisecond billing yeah no that's amazing um all right so then another a couple of other things that launched at reinvent um had to do with sort of just event sources and controlling event sources. And that this is a really long conversation, so we're gonna have to try to keep it somewhat short. Um, but the the big news I think was, you know, again, Apache Kafka and Amazon MQ opening mm -hmm. up as additional, um, you know, uh, uh, event sources for Lambda, which is important I think because you do have a lot of enterprise workloads or existing workloads that run on those types of services. So it's a nice little gateway into serverless to start introducing some more of these serverless things. Things. Um, you can comment on that if you want to. Less interesting to me because I moved away from those because I use all serverless things now. But um, but what I thought was really interesting were two um, two things that launched. One was custom checkpoints um, mm -hmm. for uh, for Kinesis batches and for uh, and for uh, DynamoDB streams, right? So mm -hmm. you have uh, if people are unfamiliar with this, and, and and you should probably be explaining this, but you had the ability to bisect batches in the past, where you could say if the first half of the batch, um, you know, you keep splitting the batch so you could get rid of that poison pill, um, but you would reprocess the same event or the same message over and over and over and over again until it was finally in a batch that fully succeeded. So that's changed now with custom checkpoints. Can you mm -hmm. explain that a little bit better than I just did? Well, I'm going to try. Uh, that, that was a pretty good one. Uh, but but that's the philosophy behind it is that this is a more advanced failure management scenario when you're processing complex patches, right? So Kinesis Dynamo is one of the, is the oldest uh, event source for Lambda at this point, right? So you're going to see more of the enhancements coming out on that front. And what this now enables you to do is get far more granular control when you're processing these larger, larger batches, right? So one core use case you've seen for Kinesis and Dynamo is these sort of analytical and aggregation patterns, be it for IoT signals or you're bringing in like machine uh, operational data in there and doing so. Right. And you, we kept seeing this pattern of people saying, well, it's not just a, a collection of records that's bad that showed up over a window of time. There's this one record that has malformed uh, patterns or records. And this just enables them to say that oh, now I failed. Let's stop right here, checkpoint, and move on. That was one thing they really liked with the what they do with sort of KCL and if they're self-hosting, but that felt like an artificial choice. You know, like right. I have to either use KCL or self-hosting. We'll, we'll, we'll go over there. Yeah, no, and, and again, that just, it, it opens up um, uh, it, it just opens up a huge level of efficiency. And the other thing is maybe people don't think about it this way. And I don't know why I'm always thinking about the billing aspect of it. Um, but that reduces billing because that is less invocations of your Lambda functions in order to process those events, right? Because if you're processing the yep. same batch over and over and over again, um, you're, you're reprocessing the same thing multiple times. So again, just another way to kind of bring that down. The other one, um, though, is the idea of tumbling windows in mm -hmm. Lambda. And this is super exciting for me because I actually, uh, one of the PMs reached out to me many, many, many months ago, um, and, and I gave some early feedback on the design on this. Uh, and, uh, and, and one, I think that's a huge testament to, and I'm sure I was just one of hundreds of people who probably commented on this, um, but uh, it, it's a huge testament to what AWS does in, in really getting these things in front of their customers early uh, and trying to figure out what those use cases might be. Mm -hmm. you know, before they end up. So you're not just, you know, sort of building things in a void. But um, tell us a little bit about tumbling windows. Yeah, no, uh, it, it's funny. This is this is actually a really good example of that because when we originally started out this feature, uh, we just thought of it as stateful processing for Kinesis. And over time, we were like, look, it doesn't make sense for us to just go and say, here's state, good luck. 
you have to kind of make it work for a for a specific aspect that work that works in this particular scenario and again tying back to that analytical use case right we kept seeing this repeated pattern of people running code on their lambda functions writing some little bit into dynamo db reading one record from dynamo db and then processing and moving forward over and over again and we said look we can just simplify this entire stack if you just enabled lambda to have a little bit of smarts in how it passed data back into the into the reprocessing of the kinesis uh, or dynamo db stream and that's kind of where we we we, we took the stumbling window operation that's that's a pretty standard one in most stream analytical uh, behaviors out there and said we now uh, support that operator uh, the, the actual primitive enables is much more fascinating for me. Tumbling window is just one specific pattern that this enables, right? Like you could look forward and say, hey, can you do other kind of aggregations on this? Like, can you now have a formal, uh, you know, this is a primitive reduce. Can you do something even more smarter over there? Can you now combine it with something like step functions and start building even more uh, smarts on how these all orchestrations come together? And I think that's what uh, is is really cool about this uh, in in terms of how it's actually built out. It, it it is it is one of the top. It's only been it's been less than a week since it's come out, but but the internal yeah. data shows it's it's quite popular already. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, no, I, it is. It's a huge solution because every every other solution you'd build around that with something janky, right? It was like loops and step functions, or like you said, writing data into DynamoDB and then reading it back just to do some simple, you know, just to pass in the aggregation or whatever it is and the aggregation the state itself i think can hold up to a megabyte of data yep. so i mean yep. it can hold a pretty good chunk of data that gets passed from invocation to invocation and um yeah so just super interesting there um, you mentioned step functions and again i know step functions are <clears throat> are a little bit outside of your purview but super important um as a uh uh, as an interface into AWS Lambda because they enable you to do orchestration. And this mm -hmm. is going to go back to why I think the one millisecond billing is so important because mm -hmm. what we used to see with, with uh, Lambda functions is, I'm sorry, with, um, with step functions is you would use that oftentimes to do function composition, right? You might have mm -hmm. a function that, you know, does some sort of conversion of your data, another function that maybe writes that data somewhere, uh, another function that then maybe, you know, processes it some other way or generates an event, and then maybe something that returns it, um, you know, and, and, and back to, a, you know, back to a, another system. Um, and that was always one of those things where it's like you're paying for every transition, you're paying a minimum of 100 milliseconds for every single step function that runs. And by the way, it's asynchronous. So really, it's got to be a background job that runs anyways. Synchronous express workflows, I think, are one of the coolest things I've seen come out of AWS in a very, very long time. Maybe even cooler than Lambda, because what this allows you to do is this is the answer to function composition, at least in my in my mind. So no more fat lambdas, no more you know lambda lifts, no more you know having to put a push a bunch of things behind the scenes. This is now a way that you can say, I have a Lambda function that does this very specific thing. Um, generically, by the way, right? It doesn't have to have a whole bunch of um, uh, specific things that it does, or, uh, uh, or it doesn't have to be tied to resources. Then I have another Lambda function that does this, another Lambda function that does this. I want to put those all together, and I want that to happen in a synchronous loop. That's possible now. Yeah, no, uh, you know, it, it, it has been six years since Lambda came out, so it's about time something more cooler than Lambda launched for sure. Uh, it, this was actually one of the really exciting launches for me too. So as you can imagine, in my role, uh, I, I end up working quite closely with a lot of the broader serverless portfolio at AWS anyways. And, you know, the set functions in Lambda sort of, PB and J for us at this particular point. So this particular pattern, it, it's funny you bring this up. 
Um, one of the things we were really excited about was this exact granularity of resourcing and duration that will enable because of these synchronous patterns, right? So uh, we had customers who were doing metadata retrieval, analytical and processing using an ML model, and then a long IO wait time to write the output into something all in one Lambda function. But then they had to run it as, you know, it was like, I think a 1.8 or a two gig function because they were like, hey, we have to run this major processing on it. Okay. Now that whole thing splits up where you have like the cheapest Lambda with like, uh, actually now you can do uh, sub 128 mil. So you can have a 64 meg function just doing simple IO, finishing in a, you know, a couple of hundred milliseconds, your your ML model beefing up to 10 gigs and doing the whole thing. And then a simple IO right again at the end doing super cheap. Your overall cost will reduce by at least probably 20 to 30% in that, but your performance behavior looks kind of consistent, right? I, I mean, this is one of the things we are really excited even when we put Express out there is it enables you to run a whole bunch of things at scale async was sort of the first pattern that it went out with and now with sync use cases you have like you said all these new things that are uh, that are opening up so that that was one of my uh, favorite non-lambda launches uh, inside inside reinvent as well but it, it ties so closely to lambda and and the reason and, and you mentioned this this is the pattern it's that 64 megabyte or or the you know 128 megabyte um uh, of ram in order to do something simple and i wrote a blog post a while back that was basically you know about you know if you're paying to wait for lambda especially mm -hmm. if you're paying to wait for something like an api call then don't you know don't run it at at a, at a, at a gig of memory. I mean that doesn't make any sense, right? Mm -hmm. Run it at 128 because it's not going to be any faster or slower. And if it's any slower, we're talking milliseconds. Um, but this is what I love about single-purpose lambda functions in the first place is the isolation model, not just from the idea of you know just that code is very simple and it's running it there, but you have the security isolation, you have um, the concurrency isolation, you have um, you know the memory isolation, you have all that stuff that's there. And if you think about the ability to say I can run this particular lambda function to maybe you know hidden API, and all it's got to do is bring that data back, and I can run that like you said 64 uh, 64 megabytes, then pass that response into something that can that can do the actual processing on it or whatever. So that's super huge. I, I love that pattern. Um, and what's uh, what's another thing that was launched at, at AWS or now I'm sorry at reInvent that was announced was now that you can invoke these synchronous express workflows directly from HTTP APIs. So now you don't need a Lambda function sitting there saying, okay, I'm going to invoke this, wait for the response, and then spit it back. Now you just take that step out, you go directly into the uh, into the step function, and again, mm -hmm. any things you want to add, of course, security and uh, you know authentication, that's all added at the API level, but anything you want to do within that, you get all that data, you get everything you need to do to do these really complex synchronous workflows. By the way, in parallel too, if you want to run parallel, Execute. There's all kinds of crazy things you can do, um, all within this within this you know single round trip to the server. Um, I, I'm I'm gushing about this, but to me this is just fascinating. Uh, yeah, Jeremy. I mean, the, the the stacking was conscious, right? So HTTP APIs on synchronous APIs on Lambda functions was exactly the pattern you're going for. I think. Uh, this is one I'm really excited to see how the CDK folks will respond to this because it lends itself really nice to sort of these programmatic creation of more complex things uh, using these service primitives in the end, right? Like the API and the workflow and the functions express this code, kind of bringing it together. 
Um, you know, one interesting thing even about the isolation model is one pattern we started seeing already is customers splitting up their execution role for all these individual functions. So yes, that right. the, 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 the first uh, function that's retrieving metadata only talks to the DynamoDB table. The second function only talks to S3 and the third one only talks to the HTTP API. Like that granularity of, of isolation and, and, you know, even uh, interface isolation, so to speak, and what they speak to is, is extremely powerful, not to mention the fact that the teams can work on those things separately if they so choose. Yeah. So yeah, th this is one that hopefully next year you and I are having an entire dedicated session just about this you know, with with my step right. function plans, of course. Right. And, <laughs> and the um and the reuse. I mean, that's the other thing to me that I think is really interesting is the reuse aspect of it. So you're right. You can have one function that can only talk to DynamoDB while mm -hmm. another function only has the secrets available to communicate with the Twilio API. I mean, there's mm -hmm. just so much isolation and, and, and the you know principle of least privilege there, but then the ability to reuse it. I mean, build a mm -hmm. generic function that queries Twitter and all you do is pass in what the, you know, what the hashtag is that you want or something like that. Um, I see yeah. there's just a lot of really cool stuff we can do that. Okay, I wanna move on because we've got more to talk about. <laughs> um, so um, before reInvent, there were a number of really cool things that came out as well. Um, one of the big ones was EFS integration. I know this happened, uh, quite a while back, but um, you, this was this was something I think big, um, not for a lot of my work uh, workloads, not a lot of use cases that I have, but certainly the uh, the naysayers on um, serverless ML, you know, people can't do machine learning in serverless. This was a big one, I think, uh, you know, to kind of, you know, quiet them down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I will say one thing that is always fascinating to me is how much social media chatter happens about Lambda for using for web backends and API API use cases, whereas how much of our internal usage shows up for these really brutal data intensive use cases, right? Like yeah. one of our, you know, one of our big public customers who talks about us all this time is like Fannie Mae running Monte Carlo simulations on, on Lambda, right? And like yeah. this whole ML inference is, is a huge segment that has kind of grown for us even more. And you saw this in the 10 GB launch as well. Uh, I think for me, uh, EFS is a combination of things. One is, like you said, just knocking off the I can only use 512 megs uh, limit inside Lambda. You're actually getting a, a solid persistent store that comes with it that is as performant, if not uh, you know, matching Lambda's behavior in terms of ephemerality and billing and others that go with it, uh, but sort of just enabling sort of these really fast um, uh, access patterns on Lambda that meets the performance need that customers have. Like uh, I think Azurian has a story out there uh, about how they're using Lambda for these uh, ML model storages at this point using EFS uh, for exactly that reason. Like they're able to serve customer facing requests on that particular stack running really, really fast. And that combination of 10 gigs EFS, et cetera, is kind of pushing you towards this new use case direction of ML inference that I, I suspect we'll be hearing a lot more of in the future. Right. Yeah, no, that's, I, and again, it, it's, to me, it's a lot about use cases. Um, yep. I mean, even uh, one of the other ones that launched sort of pre-invent, I think it was maybe in October um, or maybe November was SQS batch windows. Um, mm -hmm. Simple, simple thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, but again, when you added SQS um, as a trigger to Lambda functions, I think it was in 2018, um, that opened up a whole bunch of really cool things where now you didn't have to have cron tabs running to poll it and whatever. But then I think what people quickly realized was now, you know, if you've got small batches or, or things coming in too quickly, um, or not quickly enough, I should say, you've got this issue where, you know, you're executing a lot of Lambda functions over and over and over again, potentially, you know, needlessly. Whereas now you can put them in batches of 10,000 um, and process some big batch. Now, again, no bisecting there, no 
iterators and things like that on an SQS yes. yet. <laughs> I'm sure. But, um, but yeah, but, but that, I mean, that's one of those things. Um, that's one of those things I thought that was a really interesting one. Um, uh, and then Lambda extension. So that was another one that got, uh, that was, that was fairly recent. Um, so this is something where, and, and maybe this is a pattern that, that we're starting to see, but the extensibility of Lambda, right? Like making it, and again, it's called extensions, but um, you know, this idea of extending Lambda so that you have more control over the runtime, you have more control into the execution model, into the lifecycle hooks and things like that. Um, so what, what's the thinking? Well, maybe explain what Lambda ex, uh, extensions are and then sort of what the thinking behind that is. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a good one for us to get into. Uh, so the idea behind so Lambda Extensions is built off something we launched called the Extensions API. So it's a peer to the Runtimes API that we launched in, in late 2018 uh, that allows you to access essentially lifecycle events from the Lambda uh, execution context. So you know when the execution context is spinning up, when it's being shut down, when something is running inside it, so when your function is actually being invoked. We also launched something called the Logging API that gets you, you know, programmatic access to the logging streams that are being generated from within that execution environment and the, and the code that's running into it. Now, what this conceptually enables, th this was very much one for our, our, our partner ecosystem, right? So one thing we realized very quickly is um, customers like using their own tools, right? Like it's good if there are defaults, but they like their own tools. Uh, and we've had this whole great ecosystem even around uh, Lambda with, uh, you know, people like uh, Epsilon and, and Tundra and, you know, IOPipe and Neuralic and Datadog and others who are trying to make sort of the Lambda debugging and diagnostic experience really powerful. But the fact that they didn't have access to this additional metadata was was kind of uh, kneecapping them. So we said, okay, let's right. open that up. Uh, you will notice one of the things we really tried hard to do with extensions is it doesn't change the experience of the person writing the function, right? The person writing the function still just either includes a layer or does something different. It's what it's these partner ecosystem people who are building the extension who get these additional capabilities. They're like, oh, now I can know when a function has started. So I can start uh, tracking a specific trace at that point. I know when the execution environment is spinning down so I can flush my log buffer and send it out there, or I can expire my credential because the function has gotten, uh, it's finished, and so I, I need to write something back to vault or checkpoint. Like, it just enables a whole bunch of these patterns around how the function itself is operated um, that I think is really, really powerful. And it's another one of those buts that you're clearing out for Lambda, right? Where you're like, okay. I, I, I would love to use Lambda, but I can't use my own operational tools. Well, well now you can. With, with identical capabilities really to, to any other compute system that you have out there. Yeah, and I want to get into the uh, into the partner aspect of stuff, but yep. I, I want to finish up with sort of these launches, um, and then we can jump we can sort of jump back to that. So uh, a couple of other things, and I'll just mention these quickly: uh, event bridge, archive, and replay events. Again, not necessarily um, something that you're working on directly, but I feel like most of the uh, the tail end of, of events end up hitting a lambda function in some way. Um, and then uh, you know X-ray integration with X3 uh, with S3, just this ability now if you're using S3 with your Lambda functions, being able to trace that all the way through is super important. There were a number of really cool launches with Amplify and some AppSync things, just giving you different ways to do stuff. Um, and, and these patterns, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, um, you know, whether they're DLQs for Lambda functions or, um, you know, event, uh, Lambda destinations, or mm -hmm. it's tumbling windows, or it's, you know, iterator control, or it's more control over how Lambda consumes these events from other things. Um, you know, 
what is they they seem i don't want to say they seem inconsistent that's not the right way to say it but some services offer x and some services don't um is that is that a general goal is that something that we might see where we see some more consistency across the consumption no uh, so i will say uh, inconsistency is not the goal but neither is consistency <laughs> right so i think the way I, I, if i if i think for me Event-driven architectures is something serverless has brought to the forefront. The idea of composing services together with strong contracts and APIs events is the lifeblood of what you know people like you and me spend our days obsessing about. So making that pattern more resilient and performant is something you're going to keep seeing. What you're seeing with these controls is having them show up where they're most definitized, right? So with, with event and replay, what we kept seeing was... Uh, sort of this idea of backlogging and replaying uh, state events, especially services that are coming, coming to EventBridge made the most sense there. So that's kind of where it showed up first. With Tumbling Window, Analytics was the big use case that we saw that control work the most for. And that's why you're kind of seeing it show up with, with Kinesis first. Uh, my, my, my rough prediction, and please don't hold me as a roadmap goal on this, is what I would say is you'll eventually see that sparse matrix getting more filled up, right? More as, sometimes more as a bet that says, hey, this is something we think will be useful for this customer base because we're seeing sort of this cross pattern. But in other cases, just because, like you said, the, the demand will start showing up. And I think DLQ is a great example of this. Like SQS started with it way back when, Lambda launched it, EventBridge now has it. And I would predict each of these integrations is going to see that pattern uh, get, get more and more. So, so yes, you will see this get consistent over time, driven both by customer demand and where we see opportunities to make uh, life simpler for these event-driven patterns built using AWS services. Yeah. Well, this past year, I did a, a talk um, that I gave a number of times called How to Fail with Serverless that yep. basically was analyzing all the different ways, uh, all the different failure scenarios and how AWS is built to handle them. A um, mm -hmm. lot of different things, you know, synchronous versus asynchronous versus stream-based versus push, a lot of different ways that these things get handled. Um, so seeing these patterns, you know, be broader so that you can use them on different services, it, I think is going to be a great thing. So um, awesome stuff there. Uh, okay, I want to mention two other things and then ask you a question about um, something that wasn't launched. Um, so Aurora Serverless V2, again, outside of, of the Lambda team, but uh, I just think generally a really good, a much better way to do MySQL or Postgres um, you know, at, at a serverless scale. So just a really good on-ramp for serverless. I mean, it just kind of... Uh, uh, it lessens the pain of somebody moving into Lambda functions and realizing, oh, I need to set up RDS proxy and I'm going to have all these issues with things. Just the the scale, you know, the, the, just the, the reliability of the databases when you overwhelm them. Um, so what are your thoughts on, on Servos V2? I mean, obviously it's a good thing, um, but, you know, just overall impressions on those types of services being built that are really, I guess, complementing the scalability of Lambda. Yeah, no, I, I think you're going to see this, this pattern of, uh, service-driven uh, primitives, right? So databases as a, as a service in the true sense of saying pure usage-based, highly scalable and, and burstable like Lambda is, really cost-efficient on a per-granular basis evolve more and more. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Aurora team's done a really nice job with serverless we do. Uh, I, I've had a chance to play with the early versions of it as well and kind of how it plays with Lambda. Um, I, I, I do... Uh, anticipate that we'll drive some consistency between that and RDS proxy over time so that you kind of have this continuum of saying your own database, connectivity, serverless, you know, serverless database or RDBMS with Aurora Serverless V2. And then who knows, right? Move on to DynamoDB if, if that, that's kind of where your flavor stands. But it's more about enabling that continuum for me uh, and kind of making sure that you have 
good checkpoints along the way of going for it. So if you're a customer who cares about the RDMS pattern, but is, is willing to kind of go AWS native on using mm-hmm. uh, some of these core capabilities with the cost efficiencies and performance you can get, it, it's, it's a great choice that works really well with the way most people are running uh, applications right now in this behavior. It's not just Lambda, right? Like even if you're using Absolutely. containers or EC2, it's the same behavior that you will see. Yeah, and I'd love to see um, I'd love to see V2 sort of handle the RDS proxy thing for you, so that you didn't have to do that yourself. Um, you know, and again, data API was a step in that direction. Um, anyways, very cool. Okay, I want to shift to um, my favorite uh, sort of runtime environment, um, which is uh, is Node, right? So um, they announced the other day AWS SDK uh, for JavaScript version three. Very, very cool um, because it allows you to you know, import just individual service packages as opposed to um, the whole thing. Probably not overly uh, exciting for you Python and Go developers and things like that, but exciting for us Node developers. Um, but the question that I got was, why, Node, why no Node 14 runtime for Lambda? Uh, yet. Yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it, it, look... Uh, I, I think we have had a pretty good record of keeping up with uh, node releases. We, we have not as done as well as in keeping the window close to 90 days as I would have hoped to. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, it's a question of uh, when, if not, not if. <laughs> All right. I'm sure that that'll make people happy. And again, you can always run your own custom runtime if you uh, if you really need it. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Epsigon. Epsigon enables teams to instantly simplify, visualize, and understand what's happening with their complex microservice architectures. With their comprehensive, lightweight auto-instrumentation, users are able to eliminate the gaps in data and manual work associated with other APM solutions, providing significant reductions in issue detection, troubleshooting, and resolution times. Epsigon aggregates, unifies, analyzes, and correlates data from all the third-party tools you love, delivering a single pane of glass for understanding serverless, containers, Kubernetes, and more. Engineers now know when something is wrong and can immediately trace issues to root cause before they affect production. Increase developer efficiency and reduce application downtime with Epsigon. And as a special for Serverless Chats listeners, if you try out Epsigon and connect your first trace today, they'll hook you up with one of their awesome t-shirts. Check it out at epsigon.com slash serverlesschats. So let's move on to... Uh, a talk that you gave at reInvent this year, and it was called, uh, you know, Revolutionary Serverless or something. Uh, what was the what was the name of your talk? Uh, it was Building Revolutionary Applications the Serverless Way. Right. Uh, so th- there were a couple of versions of the title in there when they kind of changed the launches coming in, but but that's the final one that ended up. Yeah. So <laughs> I watched this talk, and I was highly anticipating this talk because, again, you being, you know involved with all the different teams that are building these features for AWS and then obviously you know connected with all the other teams that are building these ancillary services and, and other things um, I, I was really looking forward to this talk and I and I wasn't disappointed I, I thought that um, you you did a good job of all of the things you can't say because I know I know that's a tough thing with with AWS it's like I wish you could say oh we're building this we're building this we're building this but you, you can't mm-hmm. say that and that's fine um, but I think what the talk did for me at least, was it it reaffirmed the the commitment um, I think that AWS has made to serverless. And I know I was disappointed last year 
um, that there were very few mentions of serverless, even though there were things that were launched and there were a lot of sessions. Um, I felt like serverless was very much so front and center um, this year. Uh, and, and I think your talk uh, and also um, uh, Dave Richardson's talk and things like that just kind of went over um, what has been launched and, and why you're launching it, what are the, the, uh, the, the uh, I guess the, um, the, the tenants behind those things are. So I'd love to get into this a little bit, and I'm going to put the, the link to your talk in the show notes. Uh, I think you probably have to be registered for reInvent to watch it. Um, it'll probably eventually be on YouTube, but it should be on demand um, uh, at this point. Um, but I do, want to, I do want to start with the idea of these tenants. Um, and, and part of it is, and I guess there's, a, there's maybe three or four of them in here, but let's start with this idea of serving builders. What's that about? Yeah, no. Uh, for me, uh, the, the the reason I included that in the talk was to reaffirm the idea that the, the serverless motion is ultimately about delivering value to your customers, right? The ultimate customer over us for us is someone who's building software to deliver end customer value. The goal is not to make you know in infrastructure cheaper. The goal is not to just uh, you know drive utilization to Amazon servers. The goal is not to offload workloads of data centers, it's to help builders move faster. And that's a tenant that's repeated often within the team, just to kind of reaffirm saying, your ultimate customer is the developer, they have an entire ecosystem of people helping them out, you have operators and others to kind of go and do that, but there's a developer problem you're solving, the developer's job is to you know, deliver value, the challenges they'll face are doing that at scale, at cost efficiency and others, the things they fret about are things like security, performance and scale, and that, that's kind of what needs to be our world and how we go in and build over that. And, and hopefully you'll see this reflected in the whole thing, right? You'll see our, our services are designed as application primitives. They're all, we talk about applications front and center all the time. We talk about application patterns that are enabled. Everyone who's out there talks about how quickly think they're able to build and deliver value. And I think that's what resonates for us when we say, okay, th this thing has actually got legs. Uh, you know, this, right. this whole motion is about doing less to do more, as, as I think you've said quite often too. Yeah, no, and, and, I think, and I think the idea of, you know, being more productive, building things that, are, that aren't, you know, a, this term has been used a million times, but undifferentiated heavy lifting, right? This idea of doing the same things um, and just enabling people to, to build better things. I remember, I think it was uh, last reInvent, we were, we were having breakfast together actually, and you mm, asked, yeah. how, do we, how do we explain serverless to people or something like that? And I said, serverless is just the way, at least yep. for me it is. And then it's funny, because now you know, the, you know, this is the way, is, you know, you know, from The Mandalorian, I don't know if you watched that show. <laughs> Anyways, um, it's, I think he's talking about serverless though. But, um, but there's some des design philosophies that have to sort of go into um, you know, understanding uh, how, how it is that you provide people with the, the tools that they need. Um, and so you've got some design philosophies that are this idea of you know, ephemeral, which I love, right? Like this idea of like, I've had so many companies that I've worked for that have had a server up and running for like, you know, this server has been running for six years. Don't reboot it, because if you reboot it, we have no idea what will happen. Right? And that's the worst thing you can do. Um, also, this this mixing request, right? So you have things that handle multiple concurrency. I know it sounds good that you can handle a lot of requests with a single server, but that introduces a lot of problems, um, right? And then you also have this issue where, again, back to the idea of not being able to shut that server down, um, where if you have to babysit something, because if something changes or the memory gets wiped or something happens, um, you know, and this goes back to that sort of cattle, not pets argument. So talk a little bit about that design philosophy. Yeah, no. Uh, so I, I spoke 
about this in the context of uh, what I call compute for all, right? So one of the big things that Lando was enabling was saying, it's the ultimate democratization of compute. Like, how can I give right. you access to uh, the entirety of, of uh, AWS's compute power without you having to become an expert in distributed computing, right? Like dealing with all the scale problems and others that go over there. And the, the reason we kind of picked these three as sort of our driving tenants was exactly what you called out, right? If you look at core problems that customers deal with around uh, you know, security and maintenance and otherwise, part of it is driven by the fact that they assume this thing is alive for a long time. The longer it stays, the more craft it enables, uh, the, the more complicated it becomes to to spread the workload around right like you get into say things like affinity and 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 state which gets far more complicated uh, the entity becomes addressable not just for your attachment purposes but for 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 security purposes right and security is like a really top tenant it is the top tenant for us as we're building through and it's one that we want to pass on to customers on that particular front as well and for me, you know, people often say, oh, you're saying ephemeral. Ephemeral means not durable. Uh, for me, it's it's more the temporal ephemerality of it. Like it exists, but it only exists for a short period of time when you need it to exist. And, you know, uh, the, I, I'm not saying that that means, oh, there's a finite, as long as there's a finite bound to existence, that's what matters. And that's that sort of human, human conscience. So if I start saying, oh, it's finite bound, but it's bound for a month, <laughs> you're kind of breaking right. the model a little bit over there, right? But like 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, like sure, that's that that's right. within bounds. Like that, that you're, you're still within bounds of things being cycled and cleared out and going out over there. Uh, and and like you said, the same thing with uh, tenancy and isolation, right? Like one one request, one execution environment was driven by the same thing. You need consistency of performance. That's a hard problem to do in distributed systems. Uh, you need isolated uh, resources to run and execute the code that you're doing. That's a hard problem to go solve. Um, you can enable multi-tenancy, but what, again, like you said, it sounds great in practice, and there are a whole bunch of patterns you have learned in the past that do it really for efficiency reasons, right? Like right. The, the funny thing I keep, whenever I talk to people about multiple requests for execution, they're like, well, it's because it's cheaper. I'm like, great. So what if it I, I made it cost you, you know, one cents per billion? Is it okay then? Or they're like, yeah, oh yeah, then I, then I don't want to write multi-threaded code. I'm like, great. So let me do that then. I'll make it cheaper for you rather than forcing you to write uh, multi-threaded code uh, on that particular front. Um, and, and it's that combination for it. And for me, the last bit that Lambda does really uniquely even now is saying, you deal with resources. You get CPU, you get memory, you get compute, and your code is the thing that's important. That's the addressable thing, not the resources. You're not binding right. your function to a, a collection of machines or a pod or anything that's addressable. You're just saying, I want this much memory every time it runs. And whether I spin up 18,000 cores in the back end or 1.8 cores, that, that's not your problem. That shouldn't be something you worry about, where those cores exist, where all that happens. Uh, that, that's going to be the driving philosophy over there. And again, the whole idea is the less things you have to think about from a distributed computing perspective, more than, uh, more than what you need to build and deliver value to your customers. Right. Yeah. And so the other thing, uh, the other piece of this is, is that you provide all these these primitives, um, you know, and, and capabilities. And I love this idea of democratizing, um, you know, uh, compute, because that's one of those things where I remember long ago, you know, just having to order racks and racks of servers from Dell and paying thousands of dollars a month um, in order to put them into a co-location facility somewhere. I mean, even just EC2 instances and VMs. I mean, that was a huge step forward where I remember I was paying, I don't know, something 
something like five or six thousand dollars a month just to run a co-location facility. I moved it all into EC2 instances and it dropped to seven hundred dollars a month. Right? I mean, just that huge shift there. But now, now we're not even talking about seven hundred dollars a month. We're talking about you know maybe a dollar a month if you're building a startup. I mean, you can get so cheap to do this that now the barrier to entry is incredibly low. But there's a caveat. There's always a but to these things. Um, and that has to do with, you know, one of the philosophies you mentioned was personal productivity. Um, mm-hmm. And I find this to be one of the most frustrating and the consistently frust or the, the thing I hear from, from other people I talk to all the time is the, the frustration over developing serverless applications. There's mm-hmm. SAM, there's serverless framework, there's Claudia JS, there's begin the architect framework. There's all these different ways that try to make it easier for you to build serverless applications. Um, but one of the complaints that I've had, and I know other people have had this complaint, um, is that you know AWS isn't always the best with tooling, right? I mean, the, the tooling is somewhat disconnected. It's not always consistent. Um, but that's something where, I mean, and again, I'm not even sure there's a question in here, um, but just more <laughs> along the idea of saying, I, I, I get that that's a tenant. And, and what, are, what is it, what are the plans? What are you planning on doing? I mean, to bring that, uh, to make people more productive. I mean, obviously, I think the container aspect is is one thing, right? You're meeting people where they are, um, giving them more capabilities. But what are the other things maybe that, that you're trying to do or have done that you think are sort of uh, solving that problem? Uh, as you can imagine, Jeremy, like uh, th- this is one of the top things that keeps me up at night as well, right? Like how do you make, on one hand, we're saying we're about making builders more productive. On the other hand, uh, you know, the feedback we hear is you're not doing enough. Like you have to kind of right. keep pushing the bar over there. And there's a lot of things AWS does well. Uh, I think we're we really good at building services and growing them. But when it comes to uh, aspects like developer experience, and this is where the personal productivity aspect comes to me, I think the nice thing about the philosophy, at least my team follows, and I know AWS overall does, is we can't do this alone, right? Like it's 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 not easy to go in and just say this is the way you're going to do it, take it or leave it, and then get out of the way, right? And, and that's fine. That'll work for all. That'll always work for a niche audience. But if you want to go broad with your story, it has to be something that you do in combination with others. So I think for me, a big push that that's kind of where the big push between the runtime API, container support, and even extensions comes in, right? Like how do you get the the rich ecosystem of partners around AWS to help customers uh, solve that problem and kind of do better on that particular front? So I think that's one. I think the you know I'll I'll go back even to to serverless framework right serverless frameworks was actually put out by by Austin and Co first even before Sam and others came out right like and that was one big enabler for the early drive around it and that that was a really nice innovation out there it, it kind of started tackling the problem of standardizing and deploying uh, serverless applications that inspired a whole bunch of other uh, tooling pieces that came around as well so that's one I do think serverless has a unique challenge where you kind of have, there's a new conceptual learning that you have to go through. Applications are built, composed of services, talking to each other through APIs and events where there really is no defined pattern. So you're now starting to create tribes, right? So you have a bunch of people who are like, no, this should look and behave exactly like web frameworks and I'm trying to build end-to-end stuff. And you have kind of the Claudias and others show up over there. There are others who are like, no, I'm just going to treat this as a general purpose, slightly better infrastructure as code story. And that's where you kind of have the SAMs and the CDKs with their own, tabs versus spaces debate that is kind of sparked off over there, right? And I would say the real big opportunity, and I actually really like what the Begin and Architect folks are doing over here, is starting to sort of embrace that serviceful nature of it and go, how do you make it easy to compose services together and, and build forward and, and do more over there? And I would say that's what you will see, uh, the, the place you will see AWS potentially in where 
and I, I do this pretty close across our services is when you start seeing commoditization of these particular patterns, right? So uh, that's kind of what happened with SAM. We saw every single tooling provider going and saying, I need a way to express a serverless application as a combination of services. We're like, okay, don't all of you don't solve it 10 different ways. We'll do it. We'll give you a default standard CLI, but by no means are we saying only use the SAM CLI. It's, it's an easy and default way, and we're going to keep trying to make it better, but there's always a rich ecosystem of tools that you're going to go and do over there. Same thing with diagnostics. We, with extensions, you've gone past CloudWatch. You now can use Datadog and Neuralic like as much as you do over there. So uh, I know I, I gave a non-answer to your non-question, but, but the, the whole idea <laughs> is that I think we're not going to be able to do this alone. This is going to be an ecosystem story over there. Uh, AWS has to get better on offering more vertical solutions in these particular things. And I think that's kind of where the space you will see us investing more. I, I love what the Amplify team is doing. That's my favorite example of a, a good, uh, you know, uh, simple experience that they're able to do with good defaults, end-to-end experience focusing on a single use case. Right. Yeah. And, then, and that is always where, um, you know, and again, my criticism is, only because I wanted to get better. And I think yep. that, you know, the constructive criticism is always good. Um, but AWS is always very good at building these stacks of, of, of um, uh, you know, these stacks of services, like these services that do a very, very good or simple thing. And and, and I guess that's like you mentioned in your talk, you know, this idea of application primitives um, yep. as a service, which I think is, uh, is a really good, you know, sort of way to think of it, where you've got your compute and data, you've got your integrations, you've got your tools, security and admin all baked in. Um, I think those are great things. But you mentioned something that is probably um, is the hardest thing to explain to people sometimes. And you said, you know, about architect sort of doing a good job of, of, of connecting services. Cross-service connectivity is extremely hard. It is not an easy thing to, one, do, but also to grok. I mean, just to understand um, how, you know, service X connects to service Y. And then, of course, the observability challenge that's in there. Um, but so just a little bit more on that. Like, I know there have been things that launched at reInvent in this past year. But what is AWS to, you know, doing to, to make that easier? Oh, man. Uh, I think this is actually something AWS just needs to solve on our own. Right? This is not a tooling or ecosystem problem. We, we own the services. We own the interfaces between them. We have to make it easy. So as with all things, you know, security comes first. So you will see sort of this consistent pattern of resource-based policies between each one, IAM-based roles policies between each one, granular tenants being talked to about each one across the spectrum of services that can talk to each other. I think for me, the next big one is around sort of these reliability controls, right? So the DLQs, the checkpointing and others that that enable to kind of go and do over there because a message, you need to know who you're talking to. You need to be able to talk to them securely. You need to be able to get the message to them uh, quickly and in a reliable fashion and you're sure that gets one to the other. And I think then it opens up this pattern of saying, now, now what are the new sort of line-specific use cases that you can enable, right? So this is where your batching, uh, your replays, your aggregations, time windows, and all of those show up. Uh, but, you know, we, by, because you own both sides of the equation, that's kind of where the power of, of, of AWS can really come in. Like, we're really good at doing reliability, performance, security, scale. Like, we should make that as much as possible easy for you to do. I think my prediction for you is, I would say, you're going to start seeing a far more consistent uh, API-driven story for enabling all these controls across all these connections. You're going to see less and less of this required to be solved at a tooling level and more and more of this being solved at the API level within the AWS services. And 
even in the broad for the broader set of services to participate in this, I think that's where EventBridge comes in, right? Like EventBridge has to encapsulate all these connectivity as a service capabilities. Right. And so that if you have your own SaaS service and you're like, well, in order to talk to an AWS service, I need these, you know, security availability, reliability controls, you just plug into EventBridge and that gives you all of that in a box. But for all the other connectivity, it should just be part of the the API, right? Like my dream is the event source mapping that we have for Lambda just sort of universally works for, for any pattern that you see out there. X-ray just flows end to end within the service. Tracing is enabled by default. Logging is enabled by default. Uh, but you know you, you you need a north star to keep going towards it, and as with all things AWS, it it, it comes together quickly and over time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and I think you know you mentioned too um, the API economy um, in your mm -hmm. uh, in your talk, and I, I think this is fascinating. And uh, I know one of the developer advocates, uh, I think for the Amplify team, had written an article about sort of a, a, a big difference between sort of the, the haves and the haves not in the API economy a little bit. Um, and that's probably a longer discussion. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of APIs. People are building serviceful applications now. That's just the way that it's going, right? So um, you have this idea of saying, look, if I want authentication, I can get that from Cognito, but I can also get it from Auth0. And if mm -hmm. I want um, I want email as a service, I can use SES. I can use SendGrid. Um, if I want SNS, I can, or I want... Um, you know, SMS, I can use Twilio, or I can use SNS. So there's all these different services that are there. But what I think is really interesting in terms of, of what can be done, and you mentioned this, is that interconnectivity between those services where, you know, you're, you're, everything is in silos right now. So you say mm -hmm. SNS is a service, and I have to understand the nuances of interacting with that particular service, like it is with any API. Um, and that, I think, is a huge opportunity for AWS to say, if you just need a queue, you know, you just attach, you know, Lambda to it and it, it just handles all those things that you would want it to handle. And you're not writing all that code, right? Just reducing the amount of code um, that you're writing. Um, and again, I don't know if there's a question in there, but just I think that's really interesting um, as especially considering the fact that serverless to me is more serviceful now, right? That's really a good way to think of it. Um, it's just what are the, you know, maybe just for the benefit of the users or people who are not quite convinced yet. Why why is this sort of serviceful movement um, such an important thing? Um, it just flat out, I think that is the biggest vector to speed that, that serverless brings to the table, right? Like the fact that you can cherry pick components of your customer or product by relying on other people's expertise, right? So going out there and saying, hey, I know Jeremy Daly, you have built this great chat service that has, and I trust you to offer me four nines availability and a certain right. performance guarantee. And as long as I use your API, I'm good. That the incentive for me to go and rebuild that uh, elsewhere is is negligible. Like it doesn't help my business to go and rely on, on, on anything else. And I think what that basically does is you are now recruiting an entire collection of experts, of really deep domain experts to be part of your operational team, to be part of your development team, right? They're continuously improving their portion of that tiny little product. Uh, and making it better to move faster. The scale is getting better, the performance is getting better, the capabilities are getting better, while you innovate on the part of the stack that you want to. And and what's fascinating for me is, uh, you know, that is the true uh, 
vision that we had all had when we went on microservices development as well, right? You can do independent development of different pieces. They're all, you know, small pieces loosely joined uh, that, that talk to each other and they can innovate separately. The only difference is this is not just your organization sitting and doing it, your two-person startup. You have now, you know, 22-person startups and AWS innovating on your behalf just to make your product better, right? Like your one millisecond example is a great one. Like if you were a startup who was running on us today, uh, and you happen to use Lambda for your backend compute, your bill just got 40% cheaper, which you can now pass on as end user savings with you doing nothing. Like imagine how much work you would have to do to go and that kind of get that that behavior over there. And and just one more thing, Jeremy, since you brought that up, I, I do believe the true power is going to be connecting all these SaaS services together and getting them to interconnect a lot more. Um, you're starting to see this with some of the bigger ones, right? So Twilio, uh, Workday, Atlassian, they've all added this programmable SaaS component to them, right? They've got right. these Lambda-based extensions that they're showing up, like Twilio functions and Netlify functions and others that allows them to add just a little bit of logic to them to then talk to other services via API calls um, and, and kind of build build forward over there. So I think just the flexibility and power this enables is, is is really, really cool. And the fact that you can swap out one API for another is is a, quite a testament to the whole dance around, am I really locked into a particular provider or not? Because it's quite easy to change an API call more than anything else. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. And the speed of that is, uh, I mean, just the speed and the, the less maintenance and all that kind of stuff. I actually saw a tweet the other day that said something like 99% or your, your library only handles 99% of my use case. So I built my own, right? Like it's the same <laughs> thing with APIs. It could apply there too. So don't, you know, if it does 80%, just use that, you know what I mean? And work around it another way. But uh, yeah, building your own service is crazy. All right, I, we're running out of time here, but I do want to just go over at least a couple more things quickly. One of the big things is that at the end of your presentation, you had this slide um, that was, you know, why going serverless is revolutionary. And it was because it's 30x faster development, 60% um, lower TCO, um, and just, you know, the availability, security, scale, all built in, trillions of invocations per month. Uh, the biggest thing for me here is, the TCO, because I think people miss that the total cost of ownership um, of having to maintain these other things. Like, yes, maybe a particular Lambda function costs you 30, 40, $50 a month, and maybe maybe thousands of dollars a month, depending on what your, your use case is. Um, but you might say, well, it's, you know, it's 20% cheaper if I just run a, you know, an EC2 instance or maybe spin it up on containers or something like that. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of um, operational work you're missing there. Yeah, I think this is the hardest construct for people to understand, but also the most powerful one for serverless to internalize. Uh, to your point, you know, infrastructure costs are are different to compare. I would argue uh, what we have actually seen is in most cases, unless you're running a really highly utilized EC2 instance or a container instance, Lambda would look cheaper for you, as would most of the other managed services that are out there. But there are cases where you can say, hey, I can I can run this cheaper if I really squeeze it out of my own infrastructure that I want to. Um, but at that point, you are the one squeezing that money out. You are the one pushing the efficiency out of it. You are the one managing that infrastructure. And uh, this is just my my personal note. Builders are really bad at putting a dollar amount to their own time, yes. <laughs> right? They they Absolutely. forget how valuable their time is. And you know, even if you just value your time at like I don't know, hundred dollars an hour or fifty. Uh, that quickly adds up. Like I, this, this is one of my favorite discussion points of people saying, "Well, I can run this on a, a three-person instance," and I'm like, "Great, that's good." H how many people do you spend on this? It's like, oh, it's it's right. one on call for a month. I'm like, "Great, how much are you paying the on call?" And then they're like, "Well, I don't know, it, it, you know, what five grand, ten grand a month?" I'm like, "Okay, so now <laughs> how did that compare to that lambda bill that you just changed?" 
and and you kind of see the you know the the, the gif with, with graphs and f- figures floating around their head to go through we have to do a lot more to help customers internalize that and you're going to see more i think material and content come out from from the aws team on helping customers understand both their individual costs as well as sort of how you think about the overall tco there's a great paper by idc out there uh, I, you know, it'll be a good link to include in your in your show notes as well that that people can read to get a, a really good model on how to think about the overall TCO too. But yeah, that that's the big one. Yeah, sixty percent cheaper or a five year window is big savings, whether you're a small company or a big one. Absolutely. All right. So again, we've been talking for a while. I do want to move on to a couple of other um, a couple of other things. One thing that was really exciting to me was um, during Andy Jassy's keynote, he mentioned that fifty percent of um, all new services being built on AWS use Lambda, um, which is just an insane number if you if you think about that, which is great from a serverless adoption standpoint. So that's great. Um, and, and I wonder why this is, I wonder, you know, again, is it just because it's becoming more popular? Is Lambda just now one of those things um, that is becoming a little bit more mainstream? Um, and I'd love to think that yes, just it's it's gaining in popularity. But I think part of that has to do with this. You know, we can't use Lambda because X, right? And all those objections that we've seen um, just getting crossed off the list. And the and and the the talk that I want to bring up is Adrian Cockcroft um, had an architectures trend and topics for 2021, uh, and he spent the first part of it talking about serverless. And in the talk, he basically said serverless is the fastest way to build a modern application. I agree with this. You agree with this. We know this, right? Not everybody agrees with this. And most of those objections have been around things like portability, um, you know, scalability, you know, the, the cold starts has always been a good one, um, you know, state handling, run dur- duration, complex configurations. Um, and there's been all these objections. And, and back over the summer, um, there was a conference that he gave a talk at where he basically just picked these things off one by one. Um, and he updated that through this talk. Um, and he mentioned a few things like portability, new container support, um, scalability, now 10 gigs of space, um, complex configurations, AWS uh, Proton, which we don't have time to talk about that, but you know, maybe maybe some other time. Part two, um, but, right. just, <laughs> but just your thoughts on, um, on this growth of, of serverless. Like, I mean, if you go all the way back to the beginning, I mean, it was, it was a new thing. So wh- like, what's happened over the course of the last six, seven years that have just you know, that made this thing such a a juggernaut. Wow. Um, I I will say when when we originally wrote the talk for Lambda, when we launched it, I remember Tim and I sitting up like uh, the hour after it was announced, watching the previous sign-up counter go up, right? We were like, Will people grok this? Like, will the idea right. that you can have a managed compute service that that does things for you, this whole concept of events and others really grok over there, just work? And, and it did. Luckily, here we are, you know, hundreds of thousands of users, trillions of invocations, so to speak. Um, I think for me, Jeremy, the, the big thing what we've seen is we found a nerve on helping people move faster. The core problem we are solving of saying we have democratized access to big distributed compute uh, in order to build these complex applications at a rate that you can't do before. Like that's always been the underlying philosophy behind it, right? Like you don't have to know how to build a service 
just give us code and you're basically getting code as a service that goes over there. I think the journey over the last six, seven years has been enabling new patterns, as you called out, right? And I would actually tie back to the same talk uh, things, right? One has been expanding the capabilities the compute can do for you, things like EFS, things like Firecracker, where we enabled a better isolation model, expanding the amount of compute available for you for 10 gigs and otherwise. The second dimension has been sort of expanding new patterns, a big push being, again, event-driven computing, connecting services to each other, serviceful architectures, I think we are at like 140 plus event sources at this particular point uh, in terms of the capabilities that you can use with Lambda, where we started out with three, right? It was Kinesis S3 and DynamoDB. That's been a huge growth vector for us. Uh, And now bringing that to even services that are non-AWS. So, you know, you called out MQ and and self-managed Kafka uh, now that we just announced it, including uh, AWS managed Kafka. That pattern continues to be evolved. Um, and then sort of this third one around enabling more developer tooling and productivity. And I think that last one, honestly, internally, the big flip for us was when we started becoming standardized with the internal AWS tooling, right? That was kind of when we saw the big inflection point. And that was one of our earliest signals where we said, you know, the, it, you can have the compute power really, you can have the compute be really powerful and enable a whole bunch of new application classes and motivated people will, will jump the graph to do it. But you have to keep smoothening the plank, so to speak, to help customers come on board, which is where sort of this push towards opening up the ecosystem, enabling the tools that customers care about is, is something that you will keep seeing us do a lot more. Uh, I think for me, the biggest fascinating thing about the serverless ecosystem is what Lambda has sparked, right? Like we never right. went in defining... Lambda is serverless, and serverless is the new way of doing things. So you're like, hey, here's an easier way for you to run code. Have, have a go. That sparked the serverless ecosystem. I think the kind of services that we have seen inspired by it, the idea that you can keep having, you know, spin down to zero, highly scalable, completely apps built by the millisecond uh, conversations with services out there, which wouldn't have been the case, you know, uh, six years ago. Like we were still talking about building instances by the hour and discussing the next dot dot xxl 5p thing that came out at that particular time and that conversation's changed like i i i was really the, the most ironic moment for me was getting into a debate with a customer in june who was basically really upset at us by the fact that we were doing 100 millisecond billing he's like that is not acceptable like that's a really low standard for aws i'm like Dude, I'm so happy that you're complaining to me that I'm not billing you enough. I'm billing you for too many milliseconds. Like that is the right. dream <laughs> that 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 we're getting into that argument versus versus anything else. So, I, and you know, when you look at companies like Steady or 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 stuff like what Joe Emerson and team are doing in, in over at Branch, like you're now starting to see this new flavor of single digit people startups that are right. just going to become you know, 100, 200 billion dollar companies. And this is very similar to the wave that you saw in the early days of AWS as well, right? I think there's a new micro SaaS ecosystem that's serverless has spun up that's really, really fascinating to me, which then also feeds up into how other people are building applications, right? Like, you know, the services themselves are going to be enabling new application patterns. So I, I do feel the big thing that's happened is the, the vision of saying, let builders build, let them do more with less has been realized, not not just because of, of, of Lambda. I think the entire ecosystem has evolved around it as, as people have realized and kind of putting things together. Um, and I, I think that's that's what's the biggest excitement about this for me is that now people are building things that they never thought they would. They're launching companies they never thought they would. Uh, we've seen this whole wave during COVID where people are building uh, you know, uh, response sites and distribution systems and others in like 
weeks that they couldn't have thought of handling and it's handling like millions of requests as it's coming in and for me that's really humbling and powerful right like something that you build is enabling other people to build things really faster and deliver value and we just hope to see more of that coming out yeah and i love that you you use the term um revolution um or revolutionary <laughs> in your your talk because I, I've heard a lot of people be like, oh, it's an increment. It's it's an evolution of whatever. And I just don't think it is. I think it is a revolution. I think it is a completely different way to think about building applications. And it's a revolution in that it's the people that can rise up to start building these things um, where you, there's just not that walled garden like you sort of talked about in the past. Um, all right, I want to ask you one more thing. And, uh, and I think this would be a good way to sort of end this conversation. Um, and that's to go back to the idea of the partners. Um, because I think AWS has been very, very good about you know in creating partnership opportunities for uh, for people. But you also run this sort of interesting um, uh, I don't know this sort of interesting dichotomy of building the tools to allow people to build things um, and then trying to build the tooling to solve the other side of the problem, right? So you I mean think about observability. I know observability is a frustrating thing for a lot of people. You know, CloudWatch. You know, had some. You know, CloudWatch is CloudWatch. The CloudWatch logs. I mean, you added metrics. There was insights. There's other things that have have, have certainly have gotten better over time. Um, but really, they don't compare to the Epsigons and the Lumigos and some of those. Like they just do a better job. Um, you know, and so the question is, is that you know where where is the line? Is AWS the product or is it the platform? Right? And where do you see that um, sort of going in the future? Like, what are the uh, I know I'm asking you a lot of questions here, but I, I guess just for me, I'm curious what you see as the continued um, you know, opportunities for builders out there to build tools and services for other builders. I, I should just say yes and, and, and call it <laughs> done, right? <laughs> no, um, I, I think it is going to continue to be both, Jeremy. And I think this goes back to AWS's philosophy of, of building backwards from the customer, right? And I think what you're seeing reflected in the way AWS is evolving is also the, the sheer breadth of customer feedback and signals that you end up getting, right? And I think what I, at least in my time at AWS, what I've seen is there is, uh, there's a class of people who want AWS native, right? They're like, I need this to be AWS. Otherwise, I'm not going to get it approved. I'm not going to get it yeah. through. I'm not going to use a you know, pick your own from the toolbox on the side thing. You have to give me a native solution end to end. And it needs to do the basic that's good enough, right? So there's one school over there. And there's the other one who's saying, no, look, I, I want to use uh, what I consider best of breed that works for my style, my productivity, and others over there. And like I said in the beginning, right, like there's no way AWS can do this overall. So I think for, for AWS, you're always going to see the core investments in what we consider uh, sort of the, the the core aspects of the service, right? So security, uh, performance, scale, capabilities on enabling uh, sort of API and service-driven innovation. Um, you know, I, I always think of this as the space being big enough. It's not like if, well, if AWS releases a service, it's, it's one and done. They ultimately, customers right. are going to use the best service that they care about. And I don't think AWS is the only one who can build that best service. It, that's all the examples you just called out, right? Like there are great ecosystem stories that are thriving and big over there. Um, uh, that, that continue to go big. Uh, I think you see the same thing reflected in the way Lambda is evolving, like we talked about, uh, opening up the, the core aspect of the service, which is sort of that distributed compute, uh, 
democratization is going to continue to be something we innovate in. We have opened up an API on the areas we think where other people can do stuff. Like we're like, hey, you want to bring your own runtimes and patch it better than we do? Go for it. You right. think you can manage operation <laughs> controls better than you do? Here's an API. Go for it. Have fun with it. We're going to continue to offer an end-to-end -end vertical solution for those who do care about it, right? Like, so you do want sort of the sensible defaults, I think is yeah. the is the strategy that we're going to go over do over there. Um, one thing I have heard a lot of partners bring up is how do you kind of enable better cross-service you know, discovery? How do you make sure that it's not like um, they're able to just pick a CloudWatch because they're forced to being picked into CloudWatch, et cetera. And I think that's something we're going to continue to evolve. I actually like what the EventBridge team has done really nicely over here. So if you just go to the Lambda console and try to select an event source from EventBridge, it shows all the different ones who are out there, like all the different mm -hmm. SaaS providers show up at the right. same footing as any other AWS service. And I, I think that's a philosophy you'll see evolve more. So I, I think for me, the, if I kind of bring back to your original question, I think AWS's core value add is going to be solving what you call undifferentiated heavy lifting, which lends itself to be more of the service tier, so to speak, not necessarily yeah. a platform tier. And then enabling these experiences on top of it, some which are going to be AWS native and others which are going to be just really enabled by the broader partner ecosystem over there. Yeah, no, and I, and and you said to me earlier, um, you know, the goal is not to get everything right; it's just to make everything possible. Um, yes, which I think exactly. is is quite fascinating. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, listen, uh, Jay, this was awesome. Um, this I love talking to you. Um, maybe I'll stop recording and we can talk for another ten hours uh, and not necessarily bore the <laughs> listeners with it. Um, but. Uh, this was great. Thank you so much. And not only, you know, just for being on the show, but for everything that you're doing um, at AWS, the, you know, I know you were there right from the beginning with Tim Wagner and, and the others and, and just, uh, you know, making this what it is at this point. Um, I, I think I've said this to others who have been involved early on, like, this has just changed my life, right? It's been a revolution for me and the way I build applications, the way I think about applications. Um, and, uh, and I think this has changed the world for a lot of people. So um, revolutionary is the word that I would use. So if people want to find out uh, more about you, find out more about serverless, what AWS is doing there, how do they, how do they do that? Uh so first of all, Jeremy, like, you know, thanks to you and the community as well. You know, it's the customers who keep us honest in helping evolve the service over here. And I think one of the biggest powerful aspects of serverless has been the community around it. And, you know, keep 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 spreading the word, keep telling the the customer, the builders who are listening to your talk about how we can do better. Like, like you said, the path to the revolution is serverless and the fastest way to build a serverless. And, and we're going to keep making that true. Um, I'm, I'm, I hang out on Twitter quite often. You can find me at uh, JNI or Thinks uh, on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn. And I'm usually pretty responsive uh, over there. But otherwise, you, you can always go yell at uh, Chris Munns, who is our principal developer advocate, and he has a way to find a way to find me too. Right. And a great resource that was launched not too long ago was serverlessland.com, which is really good. So go check that out. Um, awesome. All right, Ajay, thanks again. Yes. Thanks, Jeremy. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Ajay Nair for being my guest this week and to our sponsor, Epsigon. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 80. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off By None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.